Welcome to All Points In Between, the history podcast that's masquerading as a travel show. That's right, sucker. We're doing some more history, which, of course, means that I'm joined by Matt. Hello. How's it going? I'm doing very well. My microphone smells of deodorant because I was on another podcast last night and decided to do a bit where I I made it sound like a fire extinguisher was going off and I decided to do that by spraying deodorant into my microphone. So now it stinks of links. I admire your commitment to sound effects, Martin. That's that's impressive. I really should. I should just get a soundboard, really, rather than... <laughs> Probably would be easier. Rather than jerry-rigging <laughs> it with stuff from the van. Mm. Not, not that it matters for this. We never do sound effects. Far too, yeah, far too high budget for us. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, we're doing a history episode. And the inspiration for this episode came from when I was still driving around in the UK during the summer. And I went to the city of Ely, which is about 20 miles north of Cambridge. And I was wandering around the local museum there. And off the back of it, I decided to head to this nearby town that's called Littleport to retrace the steps of the subjects for today's episode. Because today, Matt, we're going to be talking about the Littleport Riot. Oh, exciting. Is this something that you are familiar with? It is something I have never heard of before, although I have the Wikipedia page open, so <laughs> I'm quickly learning, but no, I, I had no idea what Little Port Riots were. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, well, the title is of this episode, it may actually be the Little Port Riot, or it might be something else, because today I am giving you, Matt, the power of naming this episode. So you've got the choice between two. It will either be called the Little Port Riot or the Little Port Uprising. And we'll find out from you at the end which one you think sits better. Sounds good. So I think it's unsurprising that you've not really heard about this. If I'm honest, I hadn't either before I went to Ely. But it's an event that stuck in my head. Um, I suppose the line between what is a riot and what's an uprising is a bit of a blurry one. I think riots can sometimes become uprisings over the course of them or vice versa and i'll kind of explain in my extremely unacademic distinction where i think these two sit so for me well the two examples that i do have are both events that happened in the wake of killings by police and for me a riot is a phenomenon where you get a large group of people who take to the streets and cause damage, but it's in a fairly undirected, random manner. And I think an example that UK listeners will be familiar with were the 2011 riots in the UK, particularly particularly the ones outside of London. These began as protests against police shootings, but at the over the course of a few days, they descended into fairly indiscriminate looting that didn't really have much of a link with the events that sparked the incident. Whereas an uprising, for me, looks a bit more like what happened in the United States after the George Floyd killing. So in that case, there was, of course, violence as part of the the issues after the killing. But by and large, it was more directed. It was aimed at the police and at the state. There wasn't really any central leadership but there were affinity groups that were coordinating some of the activities 
and there was an element of taking and holding territory. I think there's probably quite a rich vein of discussion to be had as to why what happened in 2011 in the UK didn't end up being more like the US. Hmm. But that would probably be getting a bit off topic. And yeah, I just wanted to put that distinction out there so that you can decide what we should be calling this as to whether it's a riot or an uprising. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I always think there's a certain proportion of the population that will rise up for any reason, right? You know, whether it's a football result or an ice hockey result or something more serious than that. There are just some people that just want to go out and break stuff. Um, there was an interesting statistic I heard when they had uh, the American Civil War. I think it was 20%, not the Civil War, sorry, the American Revolution. 20% of the population were pro, 20% were anti, and 60% just didn't really, just went with the flow, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, no, it's all right. We'll have either burgers or full English breakfast. We don't really care. One exactly. Way yeah, or both. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think in this case, well, as we talk about it, you'll probably see there are people who seem to be along for the ride, but there are also some motivations behind it all. Hmm. So one of the main sources that I've used for this is a master's dissertation, which was by a guy called Christopher John Flatman. And as regular listeners will know, I've decided that this is the definitive account of events because it wasn't behind a paywall. And I'll... <laughs> I'll include that source and some of the others that I've used in the episode description. So to start with, I'll give you a quick overview of the region, where this all takes place, and the historical context to what happened. The towns of Ely and Littleport, they're in a region of eastern England that's called the Fens. And if you are ever visiting Cambridge and you want to escape the crush of the tourists, then I can really recommend them both because they are just a short bus ride from the city. The Fens itself is a landscape that's undergone a huge amount of change in the period prior to the riots. Historically, a lot of the land had been at or below sea level, and it was mostly marshes and peatland. The city of Ely itself and its giant cathedral was built there because it was historically an island this town that rose out of the waters. But if you go there today, you'll see that the region is crisscrossed with levees, which direct the rivers and opened the land up to agriculture. In the 1650s, this work started out and it was funded by a society of gentlemen adventurers, as they called themselves. Which <laughs> That's a great name. It, it Can we is... start a society of gentlemen adventurers? We can, and I think we'll and do... And gentlewomen. <laughs> gentlemen and gentlewomen and gentle, however you decide to identify, adventurers. I think we can, <laughs> we can fit that on a business card. And and I think we would probably do more interesting things than basically venture capital like these guys were doing. Yes. But, but the gentlemen adventurers, they were given parcels of reclaimed land in exchange for funding all of this Um all of this land reclamation work. The work itself was mostly done by Scottish prisoners of war. We took about 10,000 of them. They were seized by England's most beloved genocidal theocrat, Oliver Cromwell, at the Battle of Dunbar and were taken down to the Fens to do this work. The project itself was planned by engineers from the Netherlands who'd recently done 
very similar work on their side of the North Sea. And it was during this period of drainage that we start to see some resistance from the local communities. There was a group called the Fen Tigers who feared the loss of all this common land. Hmm. Previously, the land had been used by the population for well, centuries, really, to sustain themselves through things like fishing, gathering reeds, hunting wildfowl. And the drainage threatened this lifestyle. And so the tigers, they resisted it through smashing dams, cutting holes in dikes, sabotaging sluice gates. And ultimately, their campaign was unsuccessful. But their fight back against the gentlemen adventurers is still fondly remembered in the region, to the extent that there is still a rampant tiger on the flag of Fenland. Tigers so, versus adventurers. <laughs> tigers versus adventurers. And the thing is, that sounds like a really good film, but it is actually just quite a dull one about peasants breaking some dams and some venture capitalists trying to stop them. Actually, yes. now that I describe it, I'm, I'm kind of talking myself into that. that <laughs> I, I could get on board with that, actually. But that's our first domino, really. It's a region that's undergone a lot of change, and it's forced people who were perhaps a little more free in the past into a lifestyle as tenant farmers. The second piece of scene setting that we're going to do, we need to jump forward a couple of hundred years, and we're now in the period just directly preceding the riot. The UK had just come out of 12 years of fighting the Napoleonic Wars, and with the victory at Waterloo, it suddenly found itself with a large army of young men that it didn't really need. So up until the end of the Second World War, the Brits, we didn't really give much support to demobilised soldiers. People just tended to get dumped back into their hometowns and were told to get on with it. Kind of reminds me of one of those jokes in Simpsons where I'm just trying to think, I think it's Milhouse's dad gets sacked from the factory. And he's like, so that's it? After 20 years, so long, good luck? And his boss just kind of saying, I don't call saying good luck. You just... <laughs> <laughs> so you just end up with a whole bunch of soldiers who are out of work, wounded in quite a few cases, probably quite a lot of dysentery, and just generally not in great state. This ended up leading to a change in employment practices, particularly in agriculture in the area. And the University of Hertfordshire historian, Katrina Navicus, said that farm labourers would, they wouldn't be employed for a whole season by a landowner anymore. Rather, they ended up having to compete with one another for daily contracts. A contract with zero hours, one might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a state of affairs mm -hmm. that thankfully nobody in the modern UK is familiar with. So that's Domino 2. A lot of hungry, unemployed men hanging around the fens with little that they can really do to be able to feed their families. And finally, we have an event that happened on the far side of the planet. The eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia after lying dormant for several centuries, it blew its top in 1815. This threw so much ash into the atmosphere that it created a global cooling effect across the world. 
So in the Northern Hemisphere in 1816, it was known as the year without summer. There was snow in the middle of June, crops failed to grow, livestock died. And this was also just coming off the back of the food shortages that had been caused by the wars with Napoleon. And it caused the worst famine in Europe of the entire 19th century. Although, on the plus side, we did get the birth of science fiction out of it. Because Mary Shelley and her friends, they were sheltering that dark summer in a house near Geneva, telling each other ghost stories. And she came up with one that she called Frankenstein. So, plus sides, bad sides. Was it was it worth it for the worst, worst famine of the century to get science fiction? I'll, I'll leave that to the audience. So, in the months prior to the events in Little Port, there had already been food riots in other towns in the region. The largest of these was in a place called Downham Market, which is in the neighbouring county of Norfolk, but isn't actually that far from Littleport. At this one, 1,500 people laid siege to the local magistrates who were holed up in a pub. Um, the demands were made to get a guarantee of work and minimum wage. And while the magistrates did initially accept these demands, they had also called in the local yeomanry which is kind of like army reserves or national guard for American listeners. And they promptly showed up, attacked the protesters and sentenced 15 of its leaders to death. Although two of these, only two of these people actually met the hangman's noose. The rest of the sentences were commuted or um, to prison or transportation to Australia. So, now we zoom in on the town of Littleport itself. As I've mentioned, it's about four miles north of Ely, which is the main city in the area. And it's also only about 10 miles away from Downham Market, where these previous riots had taken place. In Littleport itself, there was a what was called a benefit club for tenant farmers. And these things, they were kind of proto-trade unions slash mutual aid organisations. So essentially members would pay in and could take funds out of the pot if they were struggling. And in an era before state benefits and insurance, they were pretty common things to have and really quite an important lifeline. Mm-hmm. So the group that were, well, the Little Park group, they used to meet in this pub in the town centre that was called the Globe. And the deprivation of the previous years and this year without a summer had meant that the club was didn't really have any funds left to meet the needs of its members just because people weren't able to pay into it. They were and everybody was having to take out. There was this meeting on the twenty second of May, which was just two days after the Down and Market riot, and the members of the club were pretty much at breaking point. Much of this anger was directed at another gentleman, a farmer and landowner called Henry Martin. Two years earlier, Martin had been appointed as, quote, overseer of the poor in the area. And in my research, I've not really been able to find out tons about him and his life. But the one source I found refers to him as, quote, a petty and mean local politician, a bully on the parish council, too apt to say that miserable allowances given by the parish offices were sufficient. 
So I think it's fair to say that he wasn't really taking his role as overseer of the poor very seriously. And I think that's often the case with situations like this. You end up with an individual who ends up kind of taking the blame. But yeah, he was an unpopular man anyway. Bit of a lightning rod. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think it could have been any large landowner, really. Um, in Downham Market, it ended up being these magistrates. Um, yeah, you just end up with these people who, oh, I suppose in more recent cases, things like, I don't know, say, Derek Chauvin or something like that. You, you just have a person who becomes the lightning rod, like say. So, for a bit of wider context, I did find a book called Blood or Bread, a study of agrarian riots in East Anglia. And landowners who were in a similar position to Martin, they tended to be pretty enthusiastic advocates of the Corn Laws, which are a set of laws that have been implemented during the War with Napoleon. And the aim of them was to keep cost of grain artificially high. So these were kind of a key part of strengthening laws against vagrancy and imposing minimum penalties for poaching, which were also used to really stop tenant farmers from being able to kind of feed their family. It made them reliant on landowners a lot more. And Blood or Bread also highlights the distrust of the landowners and local government had towards the benefit clubs, such as the one that was meeting in the Globe. They saw them as being, quote, centres of sedition at village level. And they wanted to crack down on them and limit their activities. The book, therefore, argues that the protagonists were desperate. They had no other means of protest against an increasingly uncharitable and hostile establishment and no means of improving their circumstances. Being so close to Downham Market, the members of the club would have been well aware of what had happened there when they met in the Globe. And indeed, one of the participants in the Downham riot, a guy called Thomas Sindel, was present at the meeting that evening. The accounts that you find of the evening are that quite a lot of beer was drunk in the Globe, and the attendees at the meeting, they all started feeding off each other's anger at the situation. And at this point, uh, an article that I found in the BBC, a local one for, for Cambridgeshire, it said, quote, feelings boiled over and the men left the pub and began intimidating their neighbours fueled by drink. And it was so- <laughs> when, when, when have people left, left the pub and not done that? <laughs> it, yeah, that, that could describe a Friday night in any provincial town in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> this just kind of had a sprinkling of politics on top. Yeah. And another source I read said that what in fact happened was that upon leaving the pub, one of the society members started blowing a horn to rally other villagers and essentially alert them that shit was about to go down in the town. So within a short amount of time, you had hundreds of people gathered in the centre of Little Part. And at this point, the riot or uprising, depending on what you want to call it, it began at this stage. In a lot of retellings of these events over the last two centuries, a lot of emphasis has been put on the drunkenness of the participants. Pretty much every article I came across talks about this at quite great length. 
And we're getting more into my opinions here, but I feel that the narrative is being pushed that the riot was largely lawless brawling. And I think it is a helpful interpretation that if you want to brush off the genuine problems that caused the riots, so the things that we've just really been talking through. And it also allowed this line to be pushed that the rioters, they weren't really desperate. You know, if they had enough money to spend on alcohol, were they really desperate? History tends to get written by the winners. And spoiler, that's not the benefit club in this situation. But there was certainly drink involved. And if I and a couple of hundred of my mates were about to face off against a state that a year earlier had defeated Napoleon, then I'd probably also want a couple of beers to stiffen my resolve. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, the alcohol involved is a bit of a sideshow to the real causes of this, as far as I'm concerned. While I'm running through the events of the riot itself, I'm going to be largely drawing from this master's dissertation that I mentioned earlier. And like I say, if I will put a link to that in the show description. And unless I mention another source while I'm talking through, just just assume that what I'm saying is coming from that essay. The first stop that they made was the house of the local village priest, Reverend, Reverend Batchel. He'd also served as a local magistrate in the area, which I think might seem a bit odd to our ears that a person would wear both these hats. But I think it was pretty common at the time, with clergy often being among the few people who'd received some kind of academic education. And so they were often the main people in the area who'd be qualified to do something like be a magistrate. The people who were out in the town they made these demands to richards that wages needed to rise they wanted two shillings a day and they also wanted the price of flour to be reduced so that they'd actually be able to feed their families and in his own witness statement from the time Batchel says that he had visited the main landowners in the area earlier that day to warn them that there was trouble coming to little part after the events that had happened in Downham Market the, well, two days before. But he claims that most of the landowners kind of brushed him off, didn't really see it as being a serious issue. And so now with a group of several hundred angry labourers and their families at his door, Thatchell took the fairly sensible option in the circumstances and said that he supported the rioters' demands and would facilitate the negotiations between them and the landowners. It was at this point that smaller groups of rioters started to break off from the main from the main gathering. Using the unrest as a bit of an opportunity to engage in the looting of local shops and settling scores with some of the other villagers. Flatman talks about this in his essay and about how the event started to take on the feel of a kind of more chaotic version of a carnival celebration. The horn that I talked about a little earlier that was used to gather the villagers was traditionally something that got used to gather people before the carnival. And a lot of the participants in the riot decked themselves out in colourful scarves and ribbons. So, yeah, it did take on a bit of a chaotic flair. (laughs) I do 
do agree with Flatman that it's not really unusual that the riot took on the aesthetics of a carnival. Now, as then, carnival festivities festivities are associated with the suspension of social norms and hierarchies and indeed there are theories in social studies that carnivals work as a bit of a pressure release valve for societies almost a kind of sanctioned good-natured version of a riot and anyone who's spent a week at cologne carnival can certainly tell you how intoxicating that atmosphere can be well the atmosphere and lots and lots of kush so, yeah, I don't think it's surprising that the participants used Carnival as a reference point for what was happening in Little Park that night. The rioters who had broken off, they made their way around the houses of the farmers. The house of a landowner called John Mobbs was broken into and ransacked at the cost of £3, which I assume is basically all the money on earth at that time. There was another elderly farmer called Josiah Dewey, and he was robbed of 100 guineas. And it's a little unclear from the essay what's meant by farmers, whether these were the people exploiting the labourers, or if they were specifically targeted for that, or if they were just unfortunate people that got caught up in the violence. But the one person who was definitely a landowner that the rioters came for was our old friend Henry Martin. The fact that the essay refers to Martin as a farmer does lead me to suspect that Flatman uses that term in his essay when he's referring to people who are employing labourers. And if that's the case, then what happened to Hosiah and John Mobbs? Good. Fine. I don't have a problem with that. So Henry Martin, he lived with his grandmother, Rebecca, who was a shopkeeper in the village. This leads to a little bit more speculation on my part. You'll notice that I do this a lot. But it sounds to me like the Martin family were basically running a company store here. There's something that was, well, something that was a bone of contention in a lot of uprisings through history was the concept of company stores. And yeah, I just wonder how many shops in the villages were owned by landowners and would sell things to people at inflated prices in possibly using company script. But I'm I'm going off topic there because I'm just speculating. I think at least that they would be the ones who would be connected, even if it wasn't explicitly a company store, you know, it's the same it's the same people who have the have the power over them in the field and it might also be running the shops and that's not going to be necessarily conducive to things going well, is it? does open it up to a little bit of exploitation, you thought, having that system where the employer owns the shops as well. Hmm. But the fact that the rioters' demands to Reverend Vatchel had included both wages and the price of flour suggests to me that, well, like we were just saying, they might be under the control of the same group of people if there are those twin demands. Henry Martin himself He manages to escape the rioters by climbing through a window, leaving his poor old grandmother behind to experience the finding out part of fucking around. The shop gets broken into and looted, and the house was turned over in an attempt to find Martin. By this point, the events had passed the stage where Reverend Batchel was able to control them, and 
he wasn't really able to bring the sides together for a negotiation. The rioters returned to Factual's house. They demanded that he hand over any money and beer that he had inside. And so Vatchel drew a pistol on the rioters, but he was pushed aside before it could be used, and his house was also promptly looted. Vatchel, his wife and his daughter were able to escape the house, and they spent several hours hiding in the fields before making their way to the safety of Ely on foot. So after wrecking Vatchel's house, the rioters began to make preparations for the next stage of the uprising, which is my favourite part of all of this. They planned an armed march to Ely to force the magistrates into making concessions. This bit isn't really directly referenced by Flatman, but the Ely Museum that I went to visit mentioned it, and so it's good enough for me. But during the rioting, during the looting, the rioters have managed to get their hands on some guns, including one called a punt gun. So, Matt, are you familiar with a punt gun? I'm not. It's it sounds like a sort of a maybe like a not a cannon, but you know what I mean. It, the, the name makes me think this is something that you that you might use to use when you don't. And your pistol's not good enough. It's yeah. It's certainly a little higher caliber than a pistol. Essentially, they're used for game hunting, and they get the name from this distinctive shape that they have. There's a few examples of them in the Ely Museum. And they're about three or four metres long, and they look a bit like sticks that you'd use for punting. So, hence the name, punt gun. Now, because they are three or four metres long, no self-respecting rioter is going to schlep one of those four miles to Ely. So, the rioters came up with an ingenious solution of their own, which was bolting their ridiculous, wily coyote-ass gun onto a horse-drawn cart. They made their own technical. Yes, they made a technical. <laughs> when I when I saw it, I did nearly jump up and down and clap in the museum. Yes, wow. <laughs> and as far as I am aware, the Little Park rioters gave the world the technical. The earliest example I'd ever come across before this was Nestor Macno bolting machine guns onto horse-drawn carts in the Russian Civil War. But mm. I think the people of Little Park, they beaten Nestor to the punch there by a good century and yeah made a technical to go and raid Ely yeah I guess you might you might have a bit of a dispute from the Hussites because I know they use something similar uh, but it was before gunpowder so they were using crossbows and stuff like that ah you see now we get into the discussion of is it a technical (laughs) (laughs) now I I don't reckon that's a technical if it's just a person stood on a cart with a crossbow. I think mm. I think your weapon has to be actually incorporated into the vehicle itself for it to be a technical. Are you there still? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh I, was okay. letting, I was letting you continue. <laughs> yeah, I know okay. we're low on time. <laughs> well, I'll probably stop there then in that case, and um, yeah, start another recording in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. That will probably do us for an episode, actually, as well. So we will come back and see how our heroes get on with their technical and their march to Ely next time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on Twitter at AllPointsCast, or you can email us, AllPointsPod at gmail.com. And I will leave you, Matt, and speak to you next time. 
see you soon. Maybe Bye. two minutes. <laughs> yep. Yep. See. Well. Yeah. I will see you in two minutes, and the listeners will see you in about a week or so. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Right.